This episode is brought to you by NordVPN. Listen up, nerds. No. Good evening, Mr. and Mrs. America, from border to border and coast to coast and all the ships at sea. What? Hello, friends. Do you have a computer? Of course you do, because it's not 1987. Hell, you're listening to this on some kind of computer right now. But do you have a VPN? Oh, (laughs) what's a VPN, you ask? Well, my friend, a VPN is a virtual private network and it offers two key benefits. Enhanced privacy and security online. But VPNs do a lot more than that. VPNs shield your IP address, change your browsing location, and make online life easier. It's all about safety and security, my friends. But, like everything else in life, it's also about watching TV. Don't let your paid subscriptions go to waste. I use NordVPN to access my home content while I'm traveling. Wink, wink. Plus, secure your connection on public Wi-Fi in airports, hotels, cafes, anywhere you go when you're traveling. There's over 6,300 servers in 111 countries, and you can find a nearby server for the best VPN speeds. NordVPN is easy to use. Connect with one click or enable auto-connect for zero-click protection. And it's got amazing speed. NordVPN is one of the fastest VPNs out there. And with just one NordVPN account, you can use it on six devices. It supports every major platform, Windows, Android, iOS, Mac OS, Linux, even Android TV. I think those are all real. Don't miss out on all the awesome benefits for using a VPN. Go to nordvpn.com ifanboy today for a risk-free 30-day money-back guarantee. The link's in the show notes. Once again, that's nordvpn.com ifanboy. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Um, you ever feel like you really need to get something off your chest? This is this this is a, like a real thing. Like, if you're mad, if you're upset, if uh, if there's something going on, like the I, there's there's often for me an idea. Maybe it's a wrong. Maybe it's a moment. It's it's an injustice. It's something that because you, you keep going on and on over and over in your mind about it, and like that can create anger and resentment or shame, whatever it is. And very often. I have found, I am not a therapist, I have found that when you let it out, when you give it voice, when you say it out loud, um, sometimes it makes you feel better because you've, you've expressed it. And sometimes it makes you realize like, oh, this is not a big deal that I've, it's been stuck in my head. So you give voice to those things um, and it can make you feel a lot better. And shock of all shocks, therapy is one of those things that can help you do that. It can help you be able to say those things in a place where you don't need to worry about the repercussions of it, work your way through it, uh, figure out coping skills, how to get around it, you know, find, find ways to deal with that stuff instead of letting it fester. Um, if you are thinking of starting therapy, uh, if anything I said sounds familiar, you're like, oh, maybe my life would be a little better if I could deal with that kind of thing. You should give BetterHelp a try. It's fully online. It is convenient, flexible. It is suited to your schedule. That's the idea. That's what they're going for. Um, you can fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. That's a big deal. You can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. That that personal connection, I believe, to be super important. Again, I'm not a professional. Uh, get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash iFanboy today. You get 10% off your first month. That is BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash iFanboy. You are listening to iFanboy's Explode with Aubrey Sitterson. Hey, this is Josh Flanagan with iFanboy. I am here today talking to Aubrey Sitterson again. 
Uh, he was on the show before, but he's back. A lot of stuff's happened. Get ready for some killer enthusiasm and a lot more positivity than you generally hear when I'm also talking. Anyway, Aubrey wanted me to let you know that the collected edition of No One Left to Fight is in comic stores now and in other places on March 24. So if you need it, you got to go to a comic shop. And I can get behind that impetus. You should be going to comic shops. Well, let's get on with it. This is Josh Flanagan. I'm here with Aubrey Sitterson. Hello. Ow! What's happening? Welcome back. Thanks, man. It's been a minute. It's been a couple of years, right? Yeah. Anything happened since then? Uh, no, not really. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's huge. I believe the last we talked, G.I. Joe was uh, was your big thing. It was mm-hmm. your moment. It was up and coming. Yep. Oh, so it hadn't even started yet when we talked? You it had, No, it, it had just started. It was, you know, like starting to come out. You were you were excited about it. That was the only thing. You told me uh, about the wrestling uh, comic that you were working on. but that was The comic book story of professional wrestling with our mutual friend Chris Moreno. I, be- I believe that you were still – you were in like the research and scripting. So it was a ways away. It was okay, a year yeah. and a half, two years. That was a long – it was an arduous process. My I, man. Bet. <laughs> I bet. Fun, but, but, but arduous nonetheless. So, I, I mean I don't know – at a certain point you, you were not super into talking about everything that happened uh, that sort of led to where we are now and I'm totally <laughs> fine with that. Yeah, but like so, you lost that book because of stuff that anybody in the world can go out and read about. Um, and and I can say uh, objectively that was dumb, not of you, but of the world. We move on. But you were at a point where you kind of thought, "Crap, everything that I've achieved is gone. I have to start over, and I'm not sure if I can do it." Yeah, that's 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 pretty accurate man um you know i i had the i had the wrestling book that was announced and it was gonna come out um but it was uh yeah it was it was a it was a rough moment for me uh-huh. <laughs> for sure so what i mean i you, i know you had that book coming out and that was you know if you if you i mean if you're listening i've, I've told people to read it if you haven't read it you absolutely should even if you have the faintest glimpse of sort of what wrestling is to you you know th- was that tell me about that experience basically because you didn't know what it was going to do what was going to happen and it's been it's been a really big deal it's been a, it's, a great book yeah, yeah a thanks, perennial man. favorite thanks man it's still i was you know um uh i i, <laughs> I don't know which makes me sound crazier that that i checked the amazon rankings before i came on your podcast <laughs> or the fact that i just do that every day anyways I was, I was gonna say, that's a dinner crazy. time thing isn't it that's the thing. I, I do that every day. Uh, because you know, it's it's a fun thing to do because um, the cool thing about the comic book story, or one of the cool things about the comic book story of professional wrestling, is it has a broader audience than just kind of direct market comics, and it does really well in direct market um, for shops that you know, and there there are graphic novel shops, and then there are periodical shops, and there are shops that do both, and so ones that sell graphic novels have a lot of success with. Um, Chris and I's wrestling book. Um, but you know, the Amazon rankings are like a really neat way to kind of get like instant feedback on how this thing's doing. And it's been like kind of ensconced in like the top, I don't know, I want to say like 15 or 20, um, wrestling books, um, since it came out. And a lot of times it'll shoot up higher. And, um, it's, I don't know, it's, it's a really gratifying thing because as you, as a, um, now hardcore wrestling fan. I well, know my kids got become. a little less interested in it, so I'm not up on it. But I, I okay. made, a, I made a. We can talk about this, but I've made a lot of ground since the last time we talked. And okay, I, well, good. I'll come back to it, which I but, yeah, look forward to. I, but go on. Yeah, I. As you're well aware, then every wrestler 
Mm-hmm. Every wrestler has at least one autobiography, right? There's a bazillion of these things. Because <laughs> wrestling, wrestling fans just gobble them up. And I, I love gonna them, too. I was going to say, if too. you're doing the, the, the stereotype, you're like, well, these, these people probably aren't readers. Not the case. No, they man. Wrestling fans love wrestling yeah. books. And uh, the fact that our wrestling comic book, our history, you know, it's, it's a nonfiction. It's a history book. It's not by a professional wrestler that people love and grew up watching. The fact that we can kind of stand toe to toe with those, um, even, um, you know, what is it like, like a year and a half after the release, uh, that's bonkers. Mm -hmm. That's, it's kind of unheard of, um, for, you know, it's, it's rare for any comics to have this kind of long tail, um, of sales, which is, that's kind of, that's kind of thing that that is most exciting to me because we, we really did, try and write this thing to be a perennial as much as we could right because we got up to like 2016 and we had to stop there because of you know we had to get the thing made and (laughs) printed so we couldn't keep on doing history uh but the fact that people are still picking it up is um i don't know it 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 gives me warm fuzzies man so what was the like we couldn't talk about this before so how did that start where did it come from and what oh yeah how did you even start with that and I know that so, you've – I'm sure you've talked about this a billion times. You haven't talked to me about it, so. No, it's fine, man. I, I, I love um, – like I said, it's it's a perennial, so yeah. uh, which means that everybody listening to this should go buy it right now. Um, the uh, So, yeah, I love talking about it. But, no, my – at the time I was doing Straight Shoot, which is my wrestling podcast. Um, I did that for like four years, right, mm-hmm. at least weekly. And um, a guy who listened to it, his name is Patrick Barb. He was also an editor at 10 Speed Press, who is the publisher. It's part of Penguin Random House. And he was working on their comics, right? And then they had like a growing line of comics. And a lot of it is kind of um, like there's a lot of like it, – it's a lot of nonfiction really. That's what does best for them. And they had a line called um, – they still have um, – called the comic book story of blank. Mm-hmm. And at the time they had done beer and I think they had video games coming out. And he, as a huge wrestling fan who listened to Straight Shoot, my wrestling podcast, um, was really advocating for them to do a wrestling book. And they said, okay, well, who do you want to do this wrestling book? And he had the bright idea to reach out to the wrestling podcaster who was also a comic book writer, right? So it made Mm -hmm. sense. Uh, And he reached out to me about it, man. I didn't even need to pitch it, um, which was great because truth be told, it's not – a project that I would have thought to pitch anybody mm-hmm. um, because I knew it was going to be an enormous amount of work. Um, and it was and like, I, you know, like I, I can write nonfiction now. I, I know that, right. I've done it. Um, but you know, I, I, fiction is where my, my heart lies and that's, that's what I want to be writing. And so, you know, he reached out to me and asked if I wanted to do this and I emailed back immediately and said, yes, absolutely. But truthfully, a large part of that was just because I knew that if anyone else did it, I would be furious. Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> like that, that project screamed Aubrey so much. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, man, I accepted. And, you know, it was a really easy pitch process because they knew they wanted to do it. And they, you know, Patrick is a big wrestling head. And so he knows this stuff. But, you know, the people above him at Penguin Random House weren't big wrestling heads so like when i sent over an outline as long as he was okay with it everybody else was like well yeah i i guess i don't know i i guess that's enough space for japanese wrestling or whatever <laughs> you know they don't they didn't have any context for it so um yeah it, it was a really smooth process pitching it and then i how much time did it take you to conceptualize it as a thing because I mean, there's <laughs> a billion ways you can do that you said mm-hmm. and as i was reading it like it, it um 
Just describe, I guess, just there was, there was a bit about it that you told me, and I'm trying to remember what it was that it, you know, it's conceived in this specific way. Yeah. You know, the, the name of the series is the comic book story of, right? right? People a lot of times call it the comic book history or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not, it's the comic book story. And I think that that's, that was like a really, that was a guiding principle for me with this. Mm-hmm. And I, I generally, I think nonfiction comics are really tough. I think nonfiction in general is tougher than anybody wants to acknowledge, right? Because when you read a nonfiction book, you don't want to read a history book. You don't want to read a list of facts. You don't even want to read a list of anecdotes. And that's, I think, what a lot of nonfiction comics, whether it's autobiographical or This is what I'm talking about. I remember this is the thing, yeah. Yeah, this is a good bit that I do. Um, So (laughs) (laughs) it's been a while, so I'm a little rusty, but I think I can dredge it back up. But, you know, so... To my mind, the difference between anecdote and a story is this. Uh, A story is curated, right? An anecdote or a book full of anecdotes is just a list of things that happened. And that that can be really interesting and beautiful and good and worthwhile just to read about and see these things happening. Um, But that's not a story to me. Mm -hmm. Um, A story entails – even with nonfiction, right? A story entails an act of curation. You have to decide what you want to cover how you want to cover it, why you want to cover it, what order you're going to put it in, in order to hammer this thing into a narrative, which is difficult. Um, it's difficult and crucial for the exact same reason, which is that the stuff actually happened, right? Mm-hmm. So there, you know, when you're looking at history, like in, when you get further removed from stuff, like I know you're a big like you're you're a big history guy, right? Oh, yeah, and like and yeah. like you get far enough removed from things, you can see these broad strokes, but you know. We, we we started in like in earnest in like the 1880s and then we brought it all the way up to the present. And, you know, even 10 or 20 years isn't a whole lot of time to have true historical context, you know. So my goal and my, you know, um, what I tr- what I tried to do in breaking this thing down and writing it was figure out what the narratives were. And I called them thesis statements, you know, and I came into the book with a few of them. And, you know, one of them is that um, wrestling has always been wrestling. And I think that that, you know, and, and some of these thesis statements were like a little bit um, polemical, right? Because they run counter to a lot of the um, prevailing common wisdom of wrestling, right? Like there's this idea that wrestling only, you know, wrestling was real up until whatever year, right? And and that and that's one of my favorites because that year changes <laughs> every five or 10 years, right? As like new generations of people grow up and say, oh yeah, when I was younger, wrestling was really real. It was, it was blood and gut. And they don't mean that it was like an actual legit competition, but they mean it was somehow more legitimate than what we're watching now. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's just one of the shell games that wrestling does with its audiences to maintain this kind of like meta narrative interest and well, which is, is the thing that you when i asked you the last time you're on the show i asked the question is what is the appeal and mm-hmm. you said that the whole thing is a con right and, and that, that was one of my other thesis and that really stuck with me yeah in a way that and that was the context for which i i you know my kids started watching it and so i was watching it with them and I, i'd done the early to mid 80s time as everyone my age did so i wasn't without context but as watching it now and one of the best things i think i told you this is like my kids were like when they when it both dawned on them like he always loses like that you know like in it like they started to see the game but it didn't put them off of it like it right. made it more fun and i was like yeah that's the deal that I, i'm thinking people just don't understand and that that was that was one of my other thesis statements. That it's a magic trick or a con or a carnival yeah. game, right? And there and all these things work the same way, and that they need the audience to be complicit, 
mm-hmm. right? Like you can't con an honest John, right? That's like an old an old grifter con man saying, right? Which means that you need the person, your mark, you need them to think that they're getting one over on you in order for you to effectively grift them, right? And wrestling works the same way in in terms of letting people think that they know more about what's going on than they do. And it's this shifting scale of how much people know and what they know and what they think they know. And that was one of the thesis statements. And then another one of the thesis statements was the, this idea that wrestling's always been wrestling, you know, that there's not, there hasn't been like a big, like, except for when wrestling was created in the carnival circuit of the 1880s and, you know, in like frontier America, there's never been a real significant change in what wrestling was. It's, it's always been the same things. Promoters have always been trying to do the same stuff. And there's a few archetypes that are just present throughout wrestling history and then get subverted and reused and things like that. So that was another one of my big kind of goals with the book was to show these repeating patterns and hopefully kind of illuminate what's so vital and effective and puissant uh about the form of professional wrestling is that the way that's pronounced i i have no idea i'm from the south josh i i, I read all these words i have no idea how to pronounce them we're at french Listen? and we're not it would be puissant but puissant. we don't talk like puissant puissant is fish <laughs> i don't know I've, i don't think i've ever heard it said out loud that's my only, yeah you know I, I me neither so i don't know somebody can somebody can write in i don't mean to call it i don't mean to call you out on that it was a genuine no no I, I i mispronounce things all the time yeah yeah <laughs> where were we sorry i interrupted you <laughs> Uh, no, I mean, I was, I was pretty much done. You were asking, you know, like what I think was going into this. So yeah, I, I started off with some thesis statements, man. And I, I knew enough to know what I didn't know. You know, that was was my question. Like how much of this was, was it like whole swaths of things you didn't know? Or was it like filling in the the skeleton of the sort of mostly filling in blanks? So I was able to do page break. So page breakdown, when I'm writing comics, page breakdowns are a really important part of my process. Um, I, I don't think that's true of everybody, but for me, like that's where most of my work gets done um, is breaking down what's going to go on each page in like kind of a granular way, not exactly page – I'm sorry, uh, panel layout, like panel um, panel descriptions yet, but right. sometimes. you know. And so I was able to in broad strokes say, OK, here's, what I'm, here's what's going to go on every single page of this 170-page graphic novel. And I felt like I needed to do that because I was – you know, I wasn't envisioning a – five issue limited series that gets collected into a graphic novel. I was envisioning a, a, a whole, right? A piece. And so um I was able to do page breakdowns pretty much immediately without really doing any additional research. Um just because, you know, I have a shelf full of wrestling books that I've read for for leisure already. <laughs> so mm-hmm. like I like I, I knew most of this stuff, right? Um and there were areas where I knew that I didn't know enough. Um and the most significant of those were actually the um the international chapters so the book has individual chapters on mexico japan and the united kingdom and japan i was more familiar with because i i like japanese wrestling a lot right now so you start to pick up more of the history um but mexican wrestling and british wrestling especially british wrestling was the the biggest um gap in my knowledge honestly because there was there's been a um there's kind of been like a Here's another word I can't pronounce properly, like a lacuna of like <laughs> of the continuity of history of British wrestling. Right. So, um, yeah, I knew enough to know what I needed to go do additional research on. And so I was able to go do that. And I had like I broke down a schedule for myself based on how fast I knew I could write. 
you know, and I was writing G.I. Joe at the time. And so I was like, well, you know, it takes me this long to do a 20 page issue of G.I. Joe. So if I had a little bit more time, because I want to take this slowly and, you know, I know there'll be a little bit of research and stuff like that. Um, <laughs> I, I worked out a, I worked out a schedule, a schedule for a schedule for myself. And I, uh, I got like on page two, <laughs> like the first night I sat down to write it, I got to page two and I thought, oh no, this is taking <laughs> so much longer than I anticipated because, you know, like, I just didn't think about this stuff that, uh, you know, every time I set a date, I had to go double check it. Right. Like I, I had to go look it up every time we were going to depict a match. And because, and this is the thing outside of like really old stuff or like obviously like made up goofy stuff that we do in the book, which there is some of, mm -hmm. um, everything that we depict is an actual match. Right. Like, and, which means that we needed to find out, you know, not only who this person was facing, but, you know, what they were wearing, what the ring looked like at the time, what the logos were like. It was and, and I didn't leave that for Chris because I'm not um, a sadist. Yeah. Right. Like, <laughs> uh, and I also knew that I could find it a lot quicker than he could. And I generally had like an idea of where to look and what I was looking for. Um, but, yeah, it was a inordinate amount of reference. Well, that, that and, and also just the, the pages, I want to say it's two, three times as dense as, a, you know action fiction fiction comic book i mean there's a lot more your scheduling was off is what i'm getting My, yeah i as you know now I, I did not fully i did not fully prepare to uh <laughs> to write this thing uh but yeah it you know it it was tough for me man because truthfully i'm not a big fan of this type of comic yeah. typically moreno is um yeah moreno is really he loves like the big books of and like the like these kind of like this like tradition of these like big meaty nonfiction comics tomes right yeah and that was never really my hit as a kid um and i and i think a lot of it comes down to what i was talking about earlier in terms of the difference between anecdote and story mm -hmm. you know and um so it was it was a real challenge to write it man um to kind of um you know it was, it was a challenge but also i came in knowing what i didn't want to do mm -hmm. and knowing like kind of what the approach should be. Um, but still it was way, you know, my fiction comics are pretty spare in terms of text. I don't do captions really. Yeah. I don't do inner monologues. Like the dialogue is, you know, um, my general thinking. And I think this is like, it's really clearly on display with no one left to fight. My general thinking is that the, the job of the comic book writer is to the, the primary job of the comic book writer is to give the artist amazing things to draw. Right. Give them things like set them up for success, just lob softballs to them. Right. So they can knock it out of the park. And that doesn't just mean splash pages. Right. Because there's a lot of different things you can do that are visually interesting. And a lot of those, too, are informed by and impacted by the story that you're weaving. So that stuff is important, too. But how specific still, are you as a, a like a scripter? Uh, it depends. It depends on who I'm working with um, and what they like and also whether I have a good idea or not. Right. Um, sometimes, you know, sometimes <laughs> if, I have, if you don't, it's up to them. Yeah, we, that's the thing. I mean, like sometimes I have a really – what I think is like a really good formal idea that I'll share um, and the artist will use it or they won't. You know, it, it's up to them because it's, sure. it's, it's, it's their turn then. But with the complex or professional wrestling, you know, like so I typically break down a page by thinking about the visuals first. And sometimes I'll have an idea for like a really strong line of dialogue that I want to hit, you know, with like a close-up or something like that. Um, but usually I'm thinking in terms of visuals. Um with the complex story of professional wrestling, I had to write it backwards for me because there was so much information that we just had to cover, right? There was there was just 
reams of text that just had to get in this thing in order for it to be comprehensive and complete. So, you know, I would do my best to come up with good visuals for the page while I was writing it. But there were a lot of times when I would have written, you know, I'd be like, okay, I don't want to go more than five panels on this page. Um, because I know that there's gonna be a lot of stuff in these, um, here are all the, here's all the text that needs to be in them. Now, what the fuck am I going to put in in these panels, which is backwards for me. And that was a real, I don't know, like it was, it was a good experience. It felt like I was, um, it felt like I was working complimentary muscles, right? It felt, it felt like I was taking a different approach to writing this stuff, but it was difficult, man. It was was tough for me. Was Chris drawing it like as you were going or was it you, he gets the finished script and then he takes it for a year or two? It's been a minute now, man, but I think um, I think I finished the entire thing before he got moving on it. I believe I I think so. Uh, Maybe I maybe I did half of it and then he started on that. I forget exactly what the deadlines were with 10 speed Mm -hmm. uh, because they had you know, they had they're a big publisher and they it it wasn't it wasn't the type of thing where they said, okay, see in a year and a half with this finished book. Like we had to turn stuff in along the way, you know, right. So there was like a time where it was it was done, hadn't come out yet. You know, what were you, were you were you satisfied with it, or you were just like, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, you know, there are there are things even now that I wish we had gotten into mm-hmm. more, or but it, but it's not stuff that I think that we omitted or left out. It's stuff that we just didn't have space for, and that or that didn't fit into the narrative that we were wielding that we were um, weaving. You know. Um, so yeah, no, I'm still really happy with it, man. Of course I wish it was more up to date, but that's how I'm always going to feel. Right. Um, but dude, a funny thing, like we, in between the time when I finished writing it and when Chris was drawing these pages, Daniel Bryan miraculously healed of his (laughs) brain injuries and came back to the ring. So like we had to address that, you know, like, like it's so you know, there's always stuff that I wish could be more up to date. Um, and there are definitely some things like I, I always tell people, I wish I could have gotten into Ernie Ladd because I just think Ernie Ladd's really neat. And I think he's a really cool part of wrestling history. Uh, but he didn't, he didn't fit, man. He didn't fit into the narrative that we're doing. So we had to, you know, we had to make some tough decisions like that. That's what you, that's your job. As a curator. Yeah, Yeah, man. So it comes out, uh, you know, pretty well received still going that way you know like i i assume you know plenty of wrestlers who who gave it their eye and it's sort of well you know like i got some pull quotes on the back man cody Rhodes, christopher daniels roddy strong (laughs) yeah but they could all be a con uh (laughs) now i don't trust anything (laughs) i like the world where i'm conning those guys into giving me quotes or they're conning you i mean i don't know the motivations that's not what i'm here for but (laughs) um so so then from that point you've got this thing and it's you know in the graphic novel world by a by a, a book publisher and that tends to not so much touch the mainstream direct comic market like so where do you go from there are you just pitching like crazy are you pitching like crazy man yeah. yeah um and um i had the good fortune to kind of um meet up as a lot of people do these days um i met up with my current editor at dark horse uh, brett israel on twitter um, he's a wrestling fan. And so he knew me, he, you know, he's a straight shoot fan. He loved the wrestling graphic novel. Um, I met that guy. I, um, we're like, like we, we talked online, uh, and then I met him at San Diego. 
um, which was fit, which was great because Fico Osio, my um, co-creator on No One Left to Fight, he's Argentinian and he comes up for one comic book convention a year and it's San Diego Comic Con. It's where we met. It's where we first started talking about No One Left to Fight. Uh, and it's where we found an editor and told him about it and sent him the sent him a, a pitch packet afterwards. Um, and Brett loved it. How did and you we were meet, meet Fico? Uh, Fico and I were both doing licensed stuff at IDW at the same time. And we had, we met at San Diego just doing like IDW, like Hasbro verse signing stuff. Um, but I was on GI Joe and he was doing like, he did the big revolution crossover and revolutionaries and, um, transformers, visionaries and, um, you know, a bunch of, a bunch of different stuff within that kind of line um but we never worked together and we really just we just liked each other um and (laughs) we got along and we realized uh yeah like we were we were standing around at san diego comic-con on the floor and i heard this like crazy noise just repetitive just over and over again and it just sounded like somebody screaming and i was like what is that because like um I don't know. Like it just wasn't stopping. I couldn't figure out where it was coming from. He's like, "Oh, dude, you didn't see? It is a booth where you get in it and you go ah, and then they do like CG to make you look like you're going Super Saiyan. It was at the it was at the Dragon Ball booth <laughs> or like the Funimation booth or whatever. And I was like, "Whoa, that's amazing!" Because I'm a huge Dragon Ball fan, and I learned that he also is a huge Dragon Ball fan, and that was that was very much the genesis of the project. Really? So that was that was the thing you both started talking about that and then you were like, let's do, let's do a story like that. Kind of, yeah. I mean, like, so we had been wanting to work together. We didn't really know what. We didn't know what to pitch. And we realized that we were both big Dragon Ball fans. And, you know, f- after San Diego Comic-Con, we were shooting emails back and forth. And we were just, as like a starting point, I was like, well, you know, here's all these things that I like about Dragon Ball. And that, like, here's all the things that really hit for me when I first started watching Dragon Ball as like a, a teenager. Like, here's all the stuff that worked for me in a way that stuff typically doesn't right. Like mm-hmm. the, here's what's unique about dragon ball and why this stuff hit for me. I, and I was planning on asking you the, the same question basically I asked about wrestling. Like, so what is the deal with that? Because the deal with dragon, ball? I, I mean, I'm, I missed it basically. Yeah. Like, like my younger brother was super into it. Um, and yeah. So like what's dragon what ball is, dragon, dragon ball is in my opinion, the premier, best example of a subgenre of of entertainment that is massively huge globally worldwide right which is fight fight manga or anime right um this includes um dragon ball of course like all of its di- different iterations um it includes shonen stuff like naruto or my hero academia or um you know, or like early JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. Um, it also includes seinen stuff, like later JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, or Baki, or Kengen Ashura. Like it's, it is a subgenre that's hugely popular everywhere in the world. But despite being massively popular in the United States, it's not a subgenre that American creators typically do much with mm-hmm. right it's 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 a very specific thing it's it's got a lot in common with superheroes but it's not superheroes like they have superpowers and they're big and muscly and they fight each other but goku's not really a superhero it's and, and i think a lot of it comes down to um it, it's a couple things right one is the thing that all these like fight i call them fight comics right that they, they all have in common whether they're shonen or seinen and for people who don't know shonen is for kind of like young like younger teen like 
tween boys, right? And but then all the way up to dudes in like their thirties. Um, whereas Seinen is more like older teen boys, all the way up to dudes in like their thirties and forties. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that defines this subgenre is this idea of training and bettering yourself and improving and becoming the best version of you that can you, that there can be. And then these, these eventual inevitable tournaments and these big fights. And so it's, it's different from superheroes, right? Because like Captain America, like Captain America trains and he stays in shape, but like, that's not a driving motivator for Captain America to become stronger or better or a better fighter. And that's, that's true of the vast majority of superheroes too, right? They, their skills exist in kind of a stasis, right? They're just really fucking good. And maybe they need to learn a new way to fight a villain, but the constant grind of training and improving isn't really part of those stories. And it is part of um, fight comics, right? Mm-hmm. So that's one thing, and then the other thing that I think it's really. Um, I've just I've just connected a dot that may not be connected, but that right made that made me think of uh, a Pokemon, which I don't all know anything about either. But my kids do, and they talk about it. Yeah, and they say training, and I was like, that's interesting. Those two sort of Japanese things so are about I'm, training and preparing. I'm not as old as thing. you, but I'm old enough to have missed Pokemon. Um, so I can't, I can't really speak to Pokemon, but dude, it's a common thing. In, yeah, no, that's know, interesting. And we in this... like, if you're, if you're looking at it that way, like the Japanese are talking that you have to prepare and work for things and Americans are like, we would just inherit this. Right. Just yeah. be able to do it. It's different. It's, it's a different cultural thing and it's, but it's something that resonates, mm-hmm. right? It's something that, that people love and is wildly popular. And so the other thing that these fight stories typically have in com- like have in common is the focus on the fights not just as eye candy not just as a perfunctory um perfunctory climax right but as character defining stuff mm-hmm. right in the you know the bad version of a superhero fight which you know a, a lot of superhero fights are this is just they, the supervillain and the superhero take turns punching each other until one of them punches hardest and then the fight's over, right? There's not really a narrative in terms of the actual combat itself. And this is kind of where wrestling comes in, right? Because wrestling does the same thing. You know, a, a, a good wrestling match isn't just people doing moves against each other. There's a narrative. And it the way that a, pers- a, a person wrestles speaks to the nature of their character and who they are and why they're fighting and what they hope to achieve. And the same thing is true of good fight comics as well. Um, and also like wrestling, you know, there's this heavy soap opera influence where, you know, the, the most important thing in professional wrestling and in episodes of dragon ball or pick your favorite, um, you know, fight anime or manga, um, the most important thing isn't what happens in this episode. It's getting you excited for what's going to happen next episode. Right. And like there's, and that is, um, people, people make fun of it all the time with, um, Dragon Ball and they complain about it with professional wrestling all the time too, but it's something that's inherent to the form, right? Like what's exciting about these things. And a lot of times is the anticipation and the, the, kind of grinding build to something massive that eventually comes and is bigger than you expected it to be i think that's the trick of it though because that was the thing with with wrestling is even you know when we're watching it it they're always promising you the next thing and right. sometimes it would take too long to give you you have, or you have to buy the special for that but right you know and I, I mean i guess that's the trick is is making that pay off and be that thing 
yeah, man. satisfying and that's tough. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, there's a math to it. Right. Um, and I, I think that my years of wrestling fandom and like more than fandom, like not like, I don't know. I, I struggle with the way that like I call I myself a, like a wrestling aesthete. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, another word I probably am not saying properly. No, but, I think you got that one. Okay. All right. Good. Um, <laughs> that on the list. Got one on the board. Uh, yeah. You know, it's. I spent a lot of time thinking about and talking about wrestling on that podcast. And so I spent a lot of time thinking about and talking about how it works and why and the rhythms of it and, you know, the kind of um, Russian nesting dolls of building these characters and these arcs. And it's deceptively complex. It's, you know, it, it looks it looks really simple. It looks really simplistic and dopey, but there's a lot of really smart stuff going on. And um I've been I've been pulling from those rhythms, man. And I've heard it from people who are wrestling fans or who like have been following my work for a while. They're like, oh, dude, I can I see what you're doing here. Like I <laughs> like, like people pick up on the rhythms of it, which is exciting. Like I don't uh, I think that's good, man. I, I, I like for people to see not behind the curtain, but I like for people to see the thought that goes into sure. this stuff. Um, so, uh, yeah. Well, eventually that becomes the interesting thing. So how does this evolve into like what what is the. Is there a point in making a layman's pitch for no one left to fight if they're not Dragon Ball people, or how would you do that? Yeah, um, it is the story of the world's greatest fighter who has accomplished – his name is Vale, and he's accomplished everything he set out to do. He's the best fighter that the world has ever seen. He has fought all of the big battles. He's vanquished the big evil, and now there is no one left to fight. And it's about him struggling with – you know, it's – it's kind of like a very 30 something book, right? And I we, we took pains to make sure that it's accessible and okay for kids to read, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but there's like there's some heavier stuff going on there in terms of a guy trying to figure out what he does with himself and what meaning his life has once he's already accomplished the thing that gave his life meaning in the first place. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so it's about it's about Vale at a crossroads. Um, and um, also super important are the other two members of like our trio of like our main characters, um, Timor, um, who is his um, ally and adversary, um, his rival um, from childhood that they grew up together, having adventures and things like that. Yeah. Um, who's taking a different path. Nemesis. I, I've I've. It's his Vegeta. I mean, so if, uh, that doesn't help. The, that doesn't help the non Dragon Ball fan. But yeah, I mean, he's a little bit like his nemesis. They're well, rivals, though. I heard the like, thing. The thing is, like, if like an arch enemy is your enemy, they're they're anti you. They're the other side. But a nemesis can be on your side, but it's still your. I, I just I, I think Chuck Klosterman wrote that once, and it stuck with me, and I like that. Yeah, place, maybe but. he's his nemesis. Then you know, I, I would say rival. Yeah, you know, ally and rival. Um, Timor who has always been the second best. He's always lagged behind Vale. He's always been the second best fighter. But, you know, while Vale is the planetary champion and beloved by millions, he's the hero of the planet multiple times over, um, he's alone. And that's all he has. Meanwhile, Timor has settled down with Krista, their other friend from growing up, and they've got kids. They've got a family. They've got this whole other thing going on. And despite that fact, Timor's not happy either. Um, it's about two guys looking at each other and and thinking that the other one has exactly what they want. Mm-hmm. So where did that come from? Have you achieved everything and now you don't know what to do? No, I <laughs> I got a few things more, left more on the list, man. I imagine uh, so. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it it came from so 
partially it just came from trying to think about what's the most interesting part of Dragon Ball, which for me was always the relationship between Goku and team and uh, Goku and Vegeta. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, that was part of, that was kind of the initial part of it. Right. Um, but despite me having never, never saved the planet, right. Or, <laughs> or had big climactic battles with Gore Despo, the horror from the stars. Uh, I think that, I think that most people, once they start getting into their 30s, start thinking about the ways that they're locked in, right? Um, the ways that the choices they've made, and this is a big theme, this is a big running theme of the book, is that your choices limit your future choices, right? Yeah. And eventually you come to a point where you don't, where there aren't any more branching paths. There's just one way, it's forward, and you, you walk down it no matter what, and it's just your choice about how you feel about it. Right. Um, and that's a terrifying realization to have. Right. To, because especially in America, I think, because we grow up with like imbued with this idea of like you can be whatever you want. You can start mm-hmm. over. And it's this land. It's you know part of our national myth is this land of renewal and you can become whatever you want to be. But as much as we all like to say that there there comes a very ho- concrete point where that's not the case anymore, where you you have the life that you have and you need to learn how to appreciate it and enjoy it the best you can and, and, and value what's there for you. And I think that's, a, I don't know, I, that's, that's the thing that Fico and I talked about a lot. Cause it's a thing that both, both of us had experienced. So I have to imagine other people, oh, yeah. um, you know, struggle with that as well. And it's not, you know, it's because it's a comic, because it's like a big <laughs> action fight comic book. It's all, amped up to 11 with like humongous stakes and everything. But I think that that's a really, I I don't think that's an uncommon way to feel about life, especially when you're in your thirties. Yeah. I think that that's correct. And, um, I can see that in the work, you know, and I don't know that I had seen it before and it's good. It doesn't need to be front and center or anything, but, um, that helps me. It's called subtext, Josh. Yeah, I I get, well, right. But the subtext has to be something that's interesting. And I think that's, that's worth it for sure. So, you pitch this thing, it starts coming out. Like, what? What are your like? What are your expectations? What are you? What are you hoping for with it? Man, I needed it to hit. Yeah, I. <laughs> it wasn't expectations. It wasn't hoping. It was just something I needed. I needed it to hit. It felt like it was my last shot to do comics, to do the type of comics work that I wanted to be doing, and it was also my first shot to do the type of comics work that I wanted to be mm-hmm. doing. And that's not to say that I didn't, that I'm not proud of the work that I'd done previously. Right. I had a blast writing GI Joe. Um, I am enormously proud of the complex story of professional wrestling, just inordinately proud of mm-hmm. it. Um, but as I mentioned earlier, like my goal with writing comics, the thing that I've been dreaming about doing since I was a teenager wasn't nonfiction work and it wasn't playing with somebody else's characters. It was making my own stories. It was, exploring the ideas and the themes that I wanted to explore and no one left to fight is my first opportunity to do that. And, um, I needed it to be perfect. I needed it to be, uh, exquisite and excellent. I needed it to, I needed to fucking hit man. Um, and fortunately, you know, I knew how to sell this thing. Right. And I knew that there was an audience for this because of what I was talking about earlier that, you know, when I like the when I was initially out there selling it to people, I, I use Dragon Ball specifically because the Dragon Ball influences the stuff that's front and center, right? You look at the characters and they look like Dragon Ball characters, and that's by design. Fico and I talked about that. Um, Dragon Ball is massive. Dragon Ball is 
humongous, but it's, you know, you mentioned it earlier. There's this weird disconnect between direct market comics and kind of like the broader um, pop culture milieu, right? And comp, a lot of comic book shops, and I experienced this while I was talking to people um, when I was doing my retailer calls um, for this book. A lot of guys, a lot of folks who are in comic book shops, they're like, yeah, yeah, I know Dragon Ball is really big, but like, I don't think people in my store are interested in it. And, you know, it doesn't really do anything for me. Um, Dragon Ball is massive. Dragon Ball is so big. Like, when, I, when we were first working on this, the Dragon Ball Fighter Z game was the premier competitive fighting game, which is, and like, to old guys like us, that, that sounds like it's nonsense, but that's massive. That means that, like, bazillions of people are watching people play it on Twitch at all odd hours of the day, right? On top of that, um, Dragon Ball Super had just ended, which was this return to form for the series and people and Akira Toriyama was involved with it and people loved it. And you, you look, I know you're not a Dragon Ball guy, but I know that you're familiar with it because yeah. people meme it all the time. It's it's part of the cultural lexicon now. And the thing that I tell people is, you know, Dragon Ball was created in – it started up in like the late 80s, which means that now Goku, the character of Goku, has been around as long as Spider-Man had in the 90s. Yeah. Right? So like as, as well-established as Spider-Man was in the 90s, that's how established Goku is now. That's how ingrained that character is in people's brains. Um, so yeah, man, I – I was on a mission. I was on a mission to get this, and I still am, to get this into the hands of people who are going to enjoy it, who are not necessarily your normal Wednesday Warrior comic book fans. And, and I think that those folks enjoy it too. I've, I've heard from a lot of them, right? And it, it sold really well in single issues. But I'm really excited for it to be in trade um, because I think that that's where it's going to do really big business, honestly, um, because once it once it shows up in libraries and, you know, people who read One Punch Man find this thing and they, they, and they realize, oh, wait, this is all this is like the tropes and the style of storytelling that I love from manga. But it's done in this American comic style. Right. Um, because Fico, as much as he loves this stuff, he doesn't draw manga style mm -hmm. right it, it doesn't look like manga and it's certainly you know it's it's colored like absolutely nothing else on the racks like right. what fico and russell are doing the colors is bananas so you know that was kind of my big sales pitch to people and it continues to be it which is that listen if you like dragon ball and naruto and one punch man and jojo's bizarre adventure and baki and kengan ashura and all these things that i love too if you like these things but are sometimes put off by the idea of reading them because they are 40 volumes and they're 10 bucks a pop and they're they read right to left, which is really hard for a lot of people. And it's black and white, which is also really hard for a lot of people. If that puts you off, no one left to fight is the solution. You know, no one left to fight. It's, you know, it's our attempt to take, you know, it's not. Um, I've talked to people, some people about it before and they, they're like, oh, so it's like a deconstruction. And I, I kind of blanch at that because it's not it's not it's, no, it's not a deconstruction. You know, it's not us trying to pick this thing apart and break it and comment on that form it's us trying to do our version of that because it's it's it, it's a genre that we adore mm -hmm. and it's us trying to do that within the american comics milieu which is um it's work man um because you know so much of what makes those 
Japanese fight stories and fight manga work is that how much room they have. The fact that they do, they can go just 40 volumes of these things. <laughs> and, you know, and it's, and it's originally serialized in like eight or 10 page chunks. And so they can, you know, they don't need to justify the purchase price of the full magazine because there's all these other stories in there too. And that's not the, that's not a luxury we have. With and that's some, a whole other economic it is but, for how but, comics are made. Yeah, but I mean, you know, the economic system impacts the formal specifics of the book. And I think that that should inform the type of storytelling you're doing, too. So that was like a big that was a big mission for us coming into this thing is figure out a way that despite the fact that we, you know, instead of having like 10 or 12, 200 page volumes to tell the story, we have 100 pages how do we do this in a hundred pages? Mm-hmm. Um, and that was kind of, I don't know, that was like one of the big challenges that we had coming into it. So talk to me about, you know, there's the work of making the comic and pitching it in the right place, but you're making the comic and, you know, at Star Dark Horse, but it's indie comics for all intents and purposes, as you, you know, you're the marketing team, you're out there. You're like, what is the process that you went Dark through? Dark Horse has marketing folks. Anthony Morrow is yes. my, my our guy at, at, at dark horse and he is amazing he's my he's my dude but but you're right like let me talk about from the from the you said doing your retailer calls selling it to people you are ultimately the person who is responsible for that um you know i mean anybody making comics is pretty much responsible for that because of how the system goes but i know you know you worked at it you're working at it you're you know this is fun but you're doing it right now like what i think people can learn from the way that you approach selling these books to people so like what was your process with going through this? You've got the book written. You know when it's coming out. You know the schedule. Where do you start? What do you do? Well, the first thing I think is it's kind of like a mental thing, right? I think that there is a tendency um, online, but it's also really pronounced in comics online. Um, it's this whole like, um, uh, I wrote a thing. Maybe you'll check it out kind of <laughs> kind yep. of vibe. Um, and I find it despicable. Um, I find it loathsome, odious even, uh, because I think it's, I, I think it's disingenuous, right? Like either if you're ashamed of this thing you wrote, well, then you shouldn't be telling anybody about it, right? You should hide it and you should bury it and not tell people. Um, conversely, if you're not ashamed of it, if you're proud of it, let people know, man, like it's, it's the only way they're going to find out about it otherwise. So like, that's, that's my first big thing is that everything that I do that makes it out into the world, I am ridiculously proud and excited about it as I, as I think I should be, because that's the whole reason I do it, man. But don't tell um, me you didn't have to grow into that. You were, you're a mere little Christian boy. You had to learn to be <laughs> proud of yourself. Like you had to get there. Cause I don't think that that, I don't see, I don't think when people do that is disingenuous. I think that they don't know. And like to I, have, then they get to, I don't know. I think there's like a line between, I'm I'm an asshole about how great I think I am and I hope you like it and like we're like comics are bad at the middle ground. Maybe, I don't know, man. Uh my my view on it is this though. I make something, mm-hmm. I'm excited for you to see it. I want desperately for you to read it, man. I I want you to understand why this thing excites me and why it's important and vital and why you should check it out. And that's that's a joy to me, man. So, so um, you take that energy, you take that attitude. How do you practically apply it? Oh, um, I think being, um, I don't know, man. I, it's like this sounds like it's it's not. You know what? Um, 
a friend of mine at <laughs> at my gym um, who we were talking about. Um, so I've gotten really into fitness in the past like year and a half or so, right? And he was, and I lost a ton of weight, and um, he was asking me. I lost a ton, like I lost like 50 pounds and I've since put on like 20 of it back in muscle. Right. And this guy I know at the gym, who's like massive. He was asking me about how I did it. And I told him, I was like, well, you know, I just, I ate at a caloric deficit and I did Tabatas and circuit training to burn calories. And I kept protein really high. And he was like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you, you just, you did it right. You did what you were supposed to do. And we we're chit-chatting about it. And he said something I thought was really smart. And he said, you know, this, the shit like working out and being in shape and fitness it's simple, but it's not easy. Yeah, that's true. Right? And I think that that is I, – I think it's kind of the same thing with selling your work and telling people about it is it's real straightforward, man. Just figure out why you're excited about it and let people know. It's it's that easy. It's not super and – and people overcomplicated it, but that that's it. Like that, that's the entirety of it. Um, but that's tough for – it's tough for a lot of people to do for a lot of reasons. And I was being – I was being glib earlier. And I, I know. know that you know, like a lot of people do struggle with self-confidence things and stuff like that, but – Man, um, I don't think you can really aff- – if – you know, it, it, in the old days, you could be a writer who wasn't terribly confident about your work and didn't like talking about it, and you could still make a go of things because it, there were entire industries set up to sell your work to people. It was almost a selling point. Anymore. Like you could – that could be your brand, but you're absolutely – I think you're absolutely right. I think that's astute. We don't have that luxury anymore as creatives. Uh, you have to be able to sell your stuff, and you have to be proud and own it, and – um, it's, I don't know. It's a joy for me to do that stuff. I, mm-hmm. I did like, I, I worked it out. I called like 18% of the, of the comic book shops in the country. Right. <laughs> I called just so many comic book shops. Um, and it was a blast, man. And like, as long as you look at it that way, as long as you look at it as a way, as an opportunity to tell people about the work you're doing, mm-hmm. which you should be proud of. And if you're not proud of it, you should have worked harder, right? You should go back to the lab <laughs> and get to work. <laughs> But you're ostensibly doing cold calls. It's it's yeah. not very often that the person who wants to sit at their desk by themselves and tell a story is also going to be good at sort of, you know, like, how did you, did you, do you feel, were you comfortable with that the whole time? Did you get better at it? What did you learn from it? I did get better at it. Um, but I think that, I'll, I'll be honest, man, I'll tell you what helped a lot, doing four years of a wrestling podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and I think that, I mean, actually, I can totally see that influence in the way that you do things. You know, which kind of nobody else has. That's your move. That's your special yeah. move. I mean, like, it's just it. It's kind of trial and error stuff, too. Right. Is you, you figure out what works. And like, you know, I had my sales pitch when I first started doing my cold calls for no one left to fight. But it evolved. It evolved constantly. Me tweaking and trying different things and seeing what gets a good response. And um, yeah, man. But I think that. Again, to speak to the point I was making a few minutes ago, I think a lot of it just really comes down to enthusiasm. Um, mm-hmm. and that if you're excited, other people will get excited, not always, but you know, there's a much higher percentage of chance of them getting excited if you're excited than if you're not excited. Right. <laughs> you know, like, yes. so, so, so be excited, be enthusiastic. And that was, so when I did my wrestling podcast straight shoot, um, the way that I always made sure that my energy was high when I started, you know, I did it at the start of this podcast. I screamed, I just yelled, I just did like a, wow noise because that just gets me going and that's like the energy that i tried to keep throughout the entirety of my wrestling podcast it's also you know subdued a little bit right because it's Mm -hmm. a phone call not a podcast but i appreciate that yeah you know (laughs) 
<laughs> I uh, that's that's also the energy I try to bring to doing these cold calls, and it's the same energy I bring when I go to comic book conventions. Man, if people see me at a comic book convention, um, my ass is not sitting down. I am standing, and, and I'm, a, I'm not a tall guy, so that's part of it too. Um, but <laughs> I stand the entire time, and the reason is is because I'm excited, man. I'm excited to be there. I'm excited to show you this book, and I also know that from being a guy walking around artist alleys and walking around at cons, I'm much more willing to go talk to somebody who's standing up and looking me in the eye and being friendly with open body language than I am some like sad sack mope hunched over their phone facing <laughs> away from the floor behind their table. You've seen them, right? Yes, like, I have. Talking about nobody likes that. Um, I've, so I've definitely been that dude. But yeah, don't don't be that dude. Oh, I know. Knock it off, man. Be excited. <laughs> My excitement takes a different form. <laughs> so I don't know. Did I answer the question? <clears throat> yeah. So, uh, you know, that's definitely a bit of it that I don't know that people really understand too much is that, you know, people are calling retailers all the time. Like, what do you what do you find in like other channels? Like, I know like you had this had to work out for you. And I get that. So like when you're looking at like shit, here's all the things that I can do. Like, what was your what was your plan? You know, outside of calling the retailers and sort of, you know, I, you know, you have your, you know, there's social media marketing and stuff that you're doing things like that. But like, how do you get to those people that are like those people that are not going to comic shops who you think would like yeah. this? Like, how do you reach those people? You know, I'm fortunate that I have, um, I have a little soapbox of my own, sure. right? Um, that I built up through. Um, podcasting and internet presence and things like that. And, um, it's not huge, but I've got a lot of. Um, I don't know. I know. I know. I know enough. I don't like using the word fan either because it's not quite right. No, but. it's you know, it's not even. And honestly, it's not even the fans that you you, you end up leaning on. It's yeah. like the it's the colleagues and the peers yeah, and okay. the people who you know and like. So, for me, and this is something that it's. It's something I learned kind of inadvertently. I've stumbled into, and now it's something that I, you know, with all the books that I pitch, and I've got two. Um, I, I can tell you about them when we go off the air, but <laughs> I've got two unannounced things. And uh, this is my move, man. I always, I always tease something. I tell you off the air, and then we'll talk about it two years from now. Yeah. Um, I've got, I've got unannounced books at Dark Horse and other stuff. I've got brewing places, um, but. You know, I stumbled across this with the wrestling book and No One Left to Fight, um, kind of inadvertently, mm -hmm. and. I learned how important it is to have a specific audience in mind, right? Um, a lot of comic books that come out, they're great. They're, they're wonderful comic books, but it's not immediately apparent who this thing is for. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that like – I don't mean in terms of like, OK, well, this is the – these are the only people who are going to read it, right? Because for instance, the wrestling book, it's – you know, obviously it's for wrestling fans, but but we designed it too that other the non-wrestling fans can dig it as well. But having knowing that it's for wrestling fans, knowing that that's where your audience lives, gives you this humongous advantage because you can just seek out those people, right? As opposed to doing something that's just you know that as well written and well drawn and wonderful as it may be, doesn't have a natural hook or an audience. That thing has to find. That mean that that thing has to find its audience either through sheer luck or just the sheer strength of the material, which in a market that operates like the direct market currently does just isn't enough. Mm -hmm. Right. It, it's not enough for you to just be an amazing book and then it shows up on the shelves because nobody's going to know about it. Retailers aren't going to order it. People aren't going to pick it up. You need to signal people and you need to have signifiers and um, like kind of wink at people and let them know that this is that this is for them 
that this is, you know, that you've made it for their tribe, right? Um, and so I I stumbled across it with the wrestling book, and we kind of stumbled across it with no one left to fight too. Like, and so in the wake of the wrestling book and seeing how well everything did there, I realized, oh shit, man, we just need to we need to reach out. We need to sell this to anime fans. Mm-hmm. We need to sell this to anime fans and video game fans and these folks who like for the most part are kind of written off by mainstream direct market comics. Um, Big group. But it's a massive off, group. But the, yeah. He, but they have, right? Like, is that an unfair uh, thing for me to say? No, I mean, like, the um, largely the direct market is written off everybody who's not already participating in the direct market. Or right. if they haven't, they have no idea how to get to them. Yeah. None. So, I mean, so that was a thing for me, man. I, I knew these books had audiences. Mm-hmm. Um, and I knew that, you know, I, I figured out where to find them, man. Um, and I did my best to make inroads and figure out how to make it appealing to those, how to make the marketing and stuff appealing to those folks as much as I could. Mm-hmm. So what, what, what happens now? That book, that book comes out, you've got the collection out now, uh, yep. you know, it's, it's, it's been good, but, but, uh, you know, one, one miniseries is not a career make and, and I feel like you seem, it's difficult to read between the lines because you're always energized, but I feel like. You're pretty energized about the next step. Also, in the way you have to be, but be you know, there's there's projects going on, there's stuff cooking. Like, do you feel like you're in a much better place? Yeah, I feel like I'm in a great place, man. Yeah. I'm doing exactly what I want to do, mm-hmm. um, which is I'm I'm putting projects together with artists who I love, who I'm excited to work with, and are excited to work with me. We're designing things that play to all of our specific talents you know i'm uh chris moreno and i are working on a new thing um and it is as you know i I think that the wrestling book really spoke to a lot of our talents but the next thing we're doing speaks to all of them right like it's it's designed i'll I'll send you stuff for that later too uh but it's you know uh this was the dream for me man you know like having the freedom to build a thing and then a receptive editor in bread israel and publisher in dark horse which uh, I don't know. Work for Dark Horse is a dream, man. Yeah. Um, that's a it's a publisher that has a legacy and weight and value doing a Dark Horse book. Um, to me at least. Um, I think to other people too. Um, and being able to build something that's you know purely from the brains of myself and my cre- my co creators and take it to Dark Horse and say, hey, do you like this? And then say, yeah, let's do mm-hmm. it. And then. <laughs> have them underwrite it and i get to do whatever crazy weird ass thing i want to do yeah man that's i I don't know like what else what else could you want so um what's next um no one left to fight graphic novels out um or trade paperback i I don't i've tried to stop saying trade paperback because normal people have no idea what that means (laughs) um so I, I've tried to like cut it out from my vocabulary. But. So whereas I'm just saying trade. So that's even worse. That's even more you're not, confusing. You're not wrong though. That's people have no idea what that stuff means. Yeah. Um, and uh, so the graphic, the no one left to fight graphic novel, the comic, you, the comic you always wanted. It's out right now. It's got a big old number one on the spine. Mm-hmm. So uh, hopefully we'll get to come back and do numbers two, three, four, five, six. Because uh, Fico and I, you know, one of the things we didn't talk about with this book is that um, it starts with a wealth of history of stuff already haven't happened. Mm-hmm. Um, things we allude to, things we don't explain, characters who show up and all the characters know them, but you have no idea who they are. And that's that's how Dragon Ball Z operated, which is my first exposure to Dragon Ball. And so that's something we picked up too. But what that means is that there is just, 
there are reams of stories we want to tell with this thing. Um, in addition to coming, the first volume ends the big old cliffhanger. Uh, that's not a spoiler to say that. Um, that's how this stuff is designed, man. Um, so we, we definitely want to come back and do some more of that. Um, as I mentioned, I've got two books um, on the schedule of Dark Horse um, that are not announced yet, but soon. So keep an eye to the sky for that stuff. And yeah, man, um, just putting pitches together. It's um, I don't know. I feel really fortunate. I feel um, I feel blessed. Honestly, right, well, here's your. That's that's nice. Here's your like. What have you? Is this will be? This will be a summation. What have you learned? I, I, you know what I mean? Like between where you were the last time we talked, uh-huh. everything, the shit that went down, and the you know, sort of rebuilding a career. Yeah. What do you, what do you know now that you didn't know then? Um. I think so. I mentioned it earlier, um, and like at the at the risk of coming across as like <laughs> shallow or one dimensional. I mean, like the fact of the matter is, um, fitness has been a really big thing for me in the past year and a half, and it's been a really transformative thing for me physically, but also um, psychologically, right? Um, and I think that losing a bunch of weight, putting on a bunch of muscle like having a goal in mind and just doing it, just grinding it out and just doing the work, just getting up early and going to the gym and putting the time in and eating right and wearing yourself out and beating yourself up with a goal in mind. Um, it's an empowering thing, um, to see that stuff works. And, you know, it's, it's the thing I mentioned earlier. It's, it's simple, but it's not easy. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and I think that what I've learned is, you just need a steady hand, man. Like <laughs> you gotta, you gotta, you gotta keep your eyes focused on what you want and you gotta make choices to achieve that thing. And it's, it's, it's not any more complicated than that. And like, and doing that doesn't mean you'll succeed, right? That's the yeah. other thing, right? It, it certainly does not. And in fact, you probably won't, but, <laughs> and here's the, here's the trick, right? And like, here's it, like, it, People ask me all the time, they're like, oh, you know, like about like pitching books and, you know, um, like finding comic book work and stuff like that. And I was like, well, you know, um, you the fact of the matter is this. There's not really any kind of like correlation or causation or causal relationship between doing good work and having an amazing career. Right. There's not like a, there's not there's not like a substantive relationship there. Um, and that's like a really distressing thing for people to learn um, because it blows up this idea of the meritocracy. Right. Which we have all we, we have ingrained in us from a young age. Um, but I think that that's the wrong way to look at that. The right way to look at it is, OK, so if my doing good work doesn't guarantee me opportunities and success and all these things, you don't look at that and say, OK, therefore, I shouldn't do good work. You say, you say, well, therefore, I should absolutely do good work because if I do get an opportunity, I want, I want to make the most of it, mm -hmm. right? Um, and it's, and that's kind of like that's kind of the realization that I've had in terms of, you know, folk figuring out, okay, well, here are the things that I want, and here's how I'm going to maximize my chances of getting that. It doesn't guarantee it, but you've got to do the work. Right. You have to be enthusiastic. You have to be excited. You have to tell people why what you're doing is good. And then it's kind of out of your hands. Um, and hopefully it'll keep working. Um, but if it doesn't, at least I know that the work is really good.
that and you'll have massive muscles. Yeah, dude, my arms are getting really big. It's great. I'll send you pics of that too. <laughs> How vascular I'm getting. <laughs> oh no. My wife's going to be done? like, "What are you getting those photos of? Don't worry about it. It's don't, fine." Don't show them to your wife. Don't show them to your wife. That's going to cause all kinds of problems for both of us. <laughs> it's this I it's this guy. No. Don't worry about it. It's not He's a it's podcast. <laughs> Yeah, that's totally it. Boy, you have so much enthusiasm. It's exhausting. I'm sorry. Well, <laughs> in my defense, it's three hours earlier here. That's it's, it's true. That's true. No, I, I just it's it's funny because it's it's like antithetical to my aesthetic, which doesn't mean it's bad. I'm just like I can't match that because my thing is to do the opposite of that thing. Because we have our brand. You have yours. Yeah, I have mine. Brands. But it's been yeah, it's, it's been a pleasure. It's um. I I mentioned it a minute ago, but I, I do. I feel I feel really fortunate. I'm not a religious guy, but I do feel blessed because this is the stuff that I wanted, man. And I don't have any reason not to be excited. And absolutely. I don't have any reason not no, absolutely. to be super enthusiastic, right? The fact that I got to do a big graphic novel about something that is dear to my heart, which is professional wrestling. Mm-hmm. The fact that it's it's still selling really great. The yeah. fact that I got to do a <laughs> I got to do American Dragon Ball with my pal Fico Osio. That's bonkers. The the stuff that I've got coming out from Dark Horse Next, it is similarly things you're gonna laugh your balls off when <laughs> I send it to you because it's stuff that honestly and they're they're pregnant now so they i can say this like i'm shocked that dark horse has approved it i'm shocked that they're okay <laughs> with this stuff because it's it's not it's not stuff that traditional wisdom about the direct market um would would believe would be a success and i worded that in a really bonkers way right but it, it's not, it's, not the kind of, it's not the kind of stuff that is an obvious slam dunk in the direct market um but the problem with doing stuff that's an obvious slam dunk in the direct market is nobody has any idea what's a slam dunk in the direct market no. because there's the point of sale system and things are sold non-returnable. So nobody knows. Nobody knows what sell through <laughs> on anything is. Right. Um, so my goal and the stuff that I'm trying to do is stuff that makes me happy. Right. And stuff that excites me and stuff that I haven't seen before. And um, I, you know hopefully like the wrestling book, like no one left to fight, um, we'll be able to find an audience for this stuff too. And it'll be an audience that's slightly different than the folks that, you know, we think make up the comic book reading audience. Well, keep doing that thing you're doing. Do I'm trying. No I'm one trying. else other than you. I'm really glad to hear it. And, Thanks, uh, man. and, uh, this was fun. It's a pleasure as always. Thank you for having me. I'll see you again in two years. <laughs> And that is another episode of Talksplode for you. I want to thank Aubrey for coming back. Genuinely love talking to that guy. Uh, uh, he's uh, He's got a ton of energy. And where I, I normally find that irritating to people, I find it endearing him. I can't explain why. That's the deal. Uh, you can follow him over on Twitter and uh, make sure to check out his books. You can tell he's putting everything he has into them and uh, he loves making them. So you should support that uh, whenever you can. Uh, get over to ifanboy.com. You can comment on this show and see other things that we have put there, like other podcasts. You could listen to the first time that Aubrey was on. So you, you could do that. Uh, thanks to the Patreons for making this possible. And we'll talk to you later. Bye. Way down